a massive black cat. Very long in the leg, very muscular looking, round ears. The whole body language of the thing said, this is my road, I'm not moving for you. You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 28 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you in early July 2020, and it doesn't feel much like summer here in southwest England. Despite the iffy weather, I hope everyone's doing fine and you're able to get some kind of summer experience here in Britain. Straight down to local reports since the last podcast, here in Gloucestershire this past month, there have been four different reports of links. They all seem plausible because of the detailed descriptions. Two of them were in locations right next to each other and they were from informants who weren't aware of each other's sightings. And overall, these links reports have been in three very separated locations, perhaps suggesting three different individuals. We'll be covering links again on the podcasts in the autumn. OK, straight on to this show's guests. And for the second half, we're on location in Gloucestershire, on the banks of the River Severn, hearing about an incident in May in which a panther followed a couple who were walking their dogs. So that's all coming up. But first, we're going to hear from a guest who once shot an unusual cat in Britain. And his experiences that we're about to hear all about come from an area in Sussex, about 30 miles south of London. I'm very grateful to Richard coming on first, and Richard is based in West Sussex, and he is involved in pest control work, and he's also a deer stalker, and that takes him across West Sussex, East Sussex, Surrey and Kent sometimes as well. So Richard, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. And Richard, I know you know that you're going to be in the hot seat a bit because a good proportion of listeners to this podcast will probably be very much against shooting a cat. And I know that we're going to have some reflections on the act of shooting a cat from you in a minute. But first of all, Richard, I gather the first time you sort of had an encounter with a cat was actually quite accidentally running one over. Is that right? The first encounter I really had, if you can call it an encounter, would have been 1988-89. I was on a motorbike near East Grinstead at night on a B road. And one ran out in front of you. It was a fleeting glance. But even though it was a fleeting glance, I'm convinced it wasn't a fox, the size and the way it moved. That was my very first encounter, but it was hard to say what I saw. But yeah, my real encounter that you refer to, I did actually unfortunately run one over. Um, That would have been 22 years ago, give or take six months. Yeah, it ran out in front of me. I ended up physically picking it up, so there was no doubt what I'd hear. But I've gone across the bridge instantly a break what i thought was a fox run out in front of me in that split second with the fading light i thought it was a fox and all right i hunt the things but nevertheless you always automatically break when something catches you by a surprise mm. unfortunately the vehicle i was driving was a big russian jeep big galvanized bumper anyway you could hear the impact of where it is quite clearly its head hitting the bumper i was obviously in the process of braking hard the car behind me i've looked in the mirror swerved what I, around what i just run over so anyway the car's overtaken me I've braked, I've reversed back, got out of the vehicle expecting to see a fox or perhaps a fox cub, mainly based on the fleeting glance of the colour rather than 
any other description I would have given it mm-hmm. um, if I hadn't stopped. And it wasn't a fox. It's very much not a fox. It was like a very, very large ginger tomcat. And I mean, at least double the size. Well, I know nothing about big cats. It was like a hybrid of a domestic ginger tom, but it was bizarre. Tufts on its ears, big round head, fangs that protruded. Um, and it kind of like a, it was a gingery colour, hence why I thought it was a fox, but it was what I can only describe as a brindle type pattern on it, like you'd see with some lurcher dogs, like sort of stripes around it. Not not as prominent as a tiger, but it had a very small hint of this brindle coat to it, but it was primarily ginger looking. So not a caracal, because a caracal does not have any patterning, but is is very ginger and has very pronounced large tufted ears. I mean, this was all those years ago before people carried mobile phones. I mean, mm. I did actually go back for it the next day. We'll get on to that in a minute. But at the time, I'd picked it up. I and mean, if it was now, I'd, like anyone else, straight out with the mobile phone, pictures galore. But um, I definitely recall it had some kind of striping or pattern around it. But at a distance, it was so faint, you'd have probably only seen the primary colour. Okay. I mean, it wasn't prominent, like I say. It wasn't like a tiger or something blatantly stripy. But close up, it had that appearance. But it was huge. Yeah, okay. And because you weren't into the subject, you didn't at that time, or you didn't know people who were, you didn't think to take a bit of the fur or... Well, yes and no. What it was, I suppose the time of the evening where I refer to it, the light was fading. I'd actually been shooting at a farm that I used to have permission to shoot on. I've come back. I'd run it over. There's blood everywhere. It killed it instantly, unfortunately. I've looked at it, flipped it over, and I've thrown it in the bushes. I carried on what I was doing. I went home with blood over my hands, told the wife what had happened. Me and my best mate from school, who is also a shooting man, we went back the next day and it was gone. But you can clearly see where I'd thrown it off of the road. I'd thrown it on some bramble and you can see where the foliage had been flattened, but the actual, the body had gone. And we actually did have a camera with us. I mean, I guess anyone listening could say, oh, how convenient. Do you think it had been swiped by somebody else, another human passing, or do you think it had been scavenged by foxes or something? Well, at the time... All I thought is I've got an extremely freaky-looking giant tomcat at a glance, which clearly wasn't, because I didn't know what it was. So it did briefly cross my mind that mummy or daddy may have come along and removed the body, obviously because animals work on scent because of the young ones. I mean, everyone knows that, and being a hunter, I'm well aware of that. Or someone could have taken it, but it's literally your guess is as good as mine. Because I couldn't say what this creature was, it could have been fully grown. But like I say, at the time, it crossed my mind it might have been a youngster, so there might have been a bigger version of it lurking around. But it had gone, nevertheless. You realise, actually, how convenient mobile phones are as well with their cameras for things like that. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, this was a long time ago. I mean, this was before I owned any sort of mobile phone, let alone one with a camera on it. Yeah. Well, shall we advance now? This was only about a year later when you actually did shoot one. Is that right? Yes, time frame i couldn't put my life on it but yes so it's to say it was perhaps a year later yeah was it in the same sort of area yeah it was perhaps two and a half miles away so it's pretty close it was the back of weirwood reservoir i used to have permission to shoot there years guys with the gamekeeper and they'd reported a few of these big cats it was mentioned in passing and i wasn't sure what they were i just thought they were like large domestic cats that were causing a nuisance but when they said big cats i was a bit surprised with what i ended up shooting one night and for anyone listening, I'm not saying I did right or I did wrong, and I can't even answer the question if I would do it again, but the circumstances of that night, it was justified for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. And legally, um, believe it or not, it would have been justified. You know, Before any listeners 
phoning in and say they're protected and so on. The circumstances I had would have made it legal. This particular place was a pheasant shoot. That was the primary reason I was there. Not only was I friends with the gamekeeper, it was to control the foxes, obviously, because they, they like eating the pheasants and generally causing a nuisance. So I'm out on my own with a rifle. I've been walking around this large area of land. The permission I had to shoot was quite large. It was about 850 acres. If I remember rightly, I parked on the opposite side of the land, walked around in a giant circuit. And uh, More often than not, I would do it clockwise. So anyway, I'm at the top of this field looking down the bank where the field slopes away. With the lamp at night, the trick of it is if you can't see the physical outline, you normally see the shine of the eyes first. It's the first thing you see, a distance. And, of course, if you're being ethical, safe and sensible, you then make sure you view it through your binoculars, not your telescopic sight for safety reasons, which I did. And I've seen this set of eyes. I thought, oh, that's a fox. You make a squeaking noise like an injured rabbit kind of sound to attract. Now, look, because they're inquisitive, if they don't send you, they'll come and have a look, which is what you call squeaking them in. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. make an animal in distress sound, just like that sort of sound, like sucking your finger and making a squeak. Anyway, so here I am, top of the field. I've done all that. This set of eyes has come out of this bit of woodlock. I had a ride behind the trees. So it's like a very thinly sparse with trees. It's come close. So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, that looks like a fox. But I'm thinking, it's just something not right. So anyway, I've got the rifle. I'm laying down at this point, laying down, looking down the bank with my binoculars, and I'm studying it. And I can kind of get some colour rendition. I'm using a quite powerful lamp, like about a million candle powers, hidden behind the bushes. So, of course, no one who's doing their thing rightly just shoots at a set of eyes. You just simply don't, for legal and safety reasons. You just don't. So anyway, I've squeaked it, and this thing's come out of the bushes. The actual safety business it was a safe shot but that wasn't the issue i wanted to identify mm. what i may or may not be about to shoot so i'm looking at it with a set of zeiss binoculars i thought it looks like a fox cub it was something i just couldn't put my finger on looking at it there's something about the eyes and the shape of it anyway the more i studied it i'm thinking well, it's ginger but it's not a fox what is it and it was too big to me like um, someone's pet cat it was too big and i know this area of land i can put you know the in proportion to distance and that Anyway, I've looked at it, and I think it's a giant cat. And I mean a giant cat, not like someone's large ginger tom. It was really big. It was about the size of a fox. And I'm thinking, I've been asked to shoot them. That's one thing. Did I want to shoot it? I couldn't decide. I'm thinking, anyway, it started walking towards me very slowly. And I wasn't scared, but it was enough that put my should I or shouldn't I shoot into its I'm going to have to shoot it. I mean, I didn't feel in fear of my life, but... The size of the thing, and it was clearly a very, very large cat, and it's coming towards me, and I've been asked to shoot it. And I thought, well, it could be dangerous, if not to me, someone else. And I've been asked to shoot it, so I shot it anyway. I'd actually shot the thing. It's nothing to be proud of nor ashamed of. I felt it was justified at that moment in time. From a legal point of view, it was arguably duress of circumstance before any listeners get all bitter and twisted and phone the firearms department up. You know, it was it was legal given the circumstances. Mm. And I picked, of course, I walked over it. From the moment I viewed it, it was probably 120 yards away to the point where I picked it up. It was 80 or 90 yards away under a very powerful lamp that I checked carefully with set as ice binoculars. So anyway, I've got up. It's exactly as I expected to see. I can see it in crystal clear detail. And it's almost like the one I described that I'd run over. Gosh, yeah. I mean, it was stone dead. It didn't suffer. That's the only good thing before everyone screams from the rooftops what a cruel man I am you know I didn't feel any remorse but I didn't feel happy I was kind of I didn't know what to make of the situation anyway what do I do this is still that time period 
it didn't have phones. I mean, this is over 20 years ago. I didn't even own any mobile phone back then. So I put it in the bushes, carried on my walk around. I thought, well, I'd heard about these cats and shot them. It was very, very similar to the one I'd run over. Um, so you get the identical description. So anyway, I've this large area of land, I spent probably hour and a half, two hours later, I finished my walk around, I'd already been out for it. It was a very, very large, long walk about that I was doing. I suppose I really should have gone back the next day. But at the time, I was quite a blase. I told my mate about it. He said, oh, right, okay. Anyway, one way or another, we didn't get back up there probably for over a week, like the following week. Mm-hmm. I just did literally didn't think any more of it. I should have, and I would have now. I mean, I'd have taken a photo immediately. But the corpse was there. I mean, obviously, it was hot weather. It's quite disgusting, but obviously the maggots do their bit in warm weather and there wasn't much left of it. You could see the carcass, but it would have passed as the remains of a dead fox at a glance, but it wasn't. Okay. See the skull. That was the main bit that was left of six. It's a big bone structure. Didn't have the snout of a fox. It was more of a rounded face like a cat would have, basically identical to the one I run over. You got it cleanly with one shot, did you? Yeah, I got it. It didn't suffer. Yeah, I shot it with one shot. I mean, it was an easy shot. Um, it was quite a powerful rifle I was using. It was. You know, he didn't suffer. That's one good thing. I mean, I've often thought about it over the years. Would I take that shot again? I don't know. I wasn't in fear of my life, but it did start coming towards me, and it definitely wasn't a fox, so it's something to think about. You know, we're asked to shoot him. Yeah, it's coming across loud and clear that it's for somebody like you, it's not a black and white issue. It's not a sort of, you've got a fixed view on it. It's all about circumstance, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I hunt. But, you know, I have my own ethics. I mean, I've got a pet dog. I'm actually an animal lover, as hypocritical as it may sound. But I, I do hunt, you know. But then again, anything you hunt, it's got to be legal and it's got to be humane. So I can pat myself on the back in those respects. Yes, sure. But, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> it's not really much more to say. Oh, we, oh, I wish I'd gone back the next day with camera, and I can't even answer the question why I didn't. I just didn't. Mm. You know, we went back a week later. There wasn't much left of it, but. Yeah, and of course, these days, getting a bit of bone for DNA testing or whatever, then you'd know the species. But back then, I'd never really heard about big cats as such. Everyone had heard of the beast of Dartmoor, but that was about it. I'd not heard of any in this area, not really given it any thought. Back then, there was no internet. Yeah. So, you know, that the interesting things like that's nothing like it would be today, even to the casual possible. Just getting a gauge on the size and the capabilities of it, Richard, do you think it could have predated deer, at least a, a row yearling or something, or was it less capable than that, do you think? Yeah, a row yearling or perhaps a month jack, something like that. I highly doubt it could have had much success with a large row deer and certainly not something as large as a fallow deer. Yeah. Any young deer, any any fawns would have had a problem. Like I say, it was about the size of a fox. Do you think it was likely, because it was so similar to the other one that you unfortunately ran over, do you think it was related? Do you think they would have been the same species and probably linked in some way? I mean, I know nothing about big cats, even now, even since we've spoken. I still have very limited knowledge. I would have easily said they were identical. Okay. Whatever creature it was, I'd have said it was the same sort of creature. Could you describe the tail? Because that often gives clues to, to what they are. Well, on both occasions, I was more studying its facial features. I'm trying to remember that the tail on the these two I'm describing, the one I run over and the one I shot, was considerably shorter than the ones we'll get onto shortly, the big black ones. Tail length, my memory is very foggy on that. I said it was had a tail at least as long as a fox's, but obviously it wasn't bushy like a fox's brush. It was a cat's tail. But it was quite girthy. It was quite... A thick tail as well. So it wasn't a short, stubby tail, so it wasn't a lynx-like cat with um, a very short tail. 
I'm trying to remember, you know. I mean, when I say as long as a fox's tail, if you've got a set of scissors, you lose three or four inches off the end of a fox's tail because you've got the, the hair, you've got the brush bit on the end. So I'm trying to remember. I mean, to all intents and purposes, it was like a giant domestic tomcat on steroids, if you can imagine that. Yeah. So it was in proportion to a tomcat. So, and I do regret not taking a photo of it. Its head was unusually round. It was a slightly different shape from a domestic cat. And it had these fangs. Maybe we shouldn't struggle too much to try and ID it. No, I mean, it was. if you imagine someone's pet tomcat and times it by at least two, perhaps two and a half times size and weight, like everything, it was that in proportion but with a more rounded head and it had prominent fangs. The fangs stuck out of its mouth and it had slight tufts on the ears. Yeah, well, that makes it interesting. As I often say on the podcast, I meet people at uh, rural shows when I do this information stand on big cats and I take big cat sightings and I learn a lot from witnesses and informants and people at those and I was once shown on, on a mobile phone from a stalker a photo of him cradling this cat but about the size you're describing I would have said at least the size of a dog fox and I would again I'd say it was yeah. it, this would have been capable of dispatching a roe deer yearling but it was all black, and it looked to me like a mutant feral cat. It clearly was way, way bigger than a standard feral cat, and almost like a hybrid. Just while we're on the subject of shooting one, again, I've said this before on the podcast, I'd get fair few informants around the country from hunting, shooting, and fishing fraternity, and you do get a wide range of views, just like you do in any camp of people, and many of those people are far more fascinated than fearful or concerned about the cats. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I was on a different piece of land with exactly the same circumstance, I may well have been tempted to leave it. But partly what swung me, apart from the fact it was walking towards me, like I said, I wasn't in fear of my life, but it was something to consider. I had a beaky shoot before the season had ended that year, and that's when the gamekeeper said to me, I was on this beaky shoot, someone had shot one of these out of a tree like the previous weekend. Okay. And that's why he said, if you see it, you shoot them. That's kind of what swung my decision. But when you couple in other factors as well, I didn't feel in fear. You know, I'm a reasonable-sized guy. I'm not a child, and I was carrying a firearm. I didn't have much reason to. But yeah. when you think of people's cats and possibly young children, it did cross my mind at the time, and that was my justification. Whether or not I'd feel it's as justified now, I can't really answer that question. It's You don't know till you're in that situation. I'm not proud of myself. So anyone listening, I'm not proud of what I've done, nor am I ashamed. It was something I just felt needed to be done at the time. We haven't brought you here to beat you up about it. No, no, but people are going to comment and, mm. and, and, and good for them. I hope they do. But I'm just saying that, you know, I'm not gloating over it. I was invited to give a talk to a branch of the Gamekeepers um, organisation and some of the people at half-time in, in the bar were saying, if I was younger, I might have shot the one I've seen and another somebody else said, oh, I was a lynx and I enjoyed watching it through the scope because I got such a good view and it wasn't, you know, didn't cross my mind to shoot it. I had no reason to. So that you will get different perspectives. Yeah, I, I mean, I may well think like that if I ever see another one, not I have for many years now. I mean, I, mean, I may well take that view, but obviously it depends on so many other circumstances you really can't say until you're in that situation and also i think different people have got different attitudes and no matter how much you want to try and influence people say they're inclined to shoot one if you beg them not to it comes down to their own attitude at the end of the day and it's not something which can be policed very easily i imagine so may not always be true but i've had about four people tell me at the rural shows that they or their colleague gamekeeper or stalker has shot one and buried it and shut up 
Sometimes when the police make statements, they emphasise that nobody should shoot one because of the risk of not getting a clean shot and, and an injured predator is potentially extremely dangerous. But all of you responsible stalkers know that, don't you? You, you wouldn't shoot one unless you... Not everyone's a very good shot. Sometimes you get lousy car drivers, but the people mm. that are really into shooting do tend to be very, very good shots because that's what they live for. That's what they do. It's like if you're keen on football or snooker, you know, you, you hone your skills. Mm. But um, let's face it, anything that size with a modern rifle and sights and even for a mediocre shot, you should easily be able to kill something within a couple of hundred yards. You've got something a lot closer. It really shouldn't be too big an issue that you're going to wound it, depending on the number of factors. But yes, I can see why the police would say that, but they've always got to cover their backsides as well. So there's obviously other reasons of why they would say it as well. Yeah, yeah. Can we move on to the sighting you had? You had a good sighting of a larger one, didn't you, nearby? Yes, Funnily enough, yet again, this is East Grinch. This was all in the same relatively close area. Me and my friend, we were walking along. I've shot there since my school days. Know the land like the back of my hand. Me and my friend, we just, I can't remember what we shot that night. Probably shot a couple of foxes, a few rabbits. We, when two of you go, normally have one big rifle, more suitable for foxes. You have a smaller, like a two-two for shooting rabbits and take turns with the lamp. You know, it's quite a good way to work if there's two of you. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're walking along, shine this lamp, and we lock. I can't, well, I can't use the appropriate words on radio, but it's sort of a WTF was kind of the words that we exchanged. <laughs> I whispered, what did you just see? Put the lamp back on. And what we just seen is he was about to say, I saw a large black cat. This large black cat's, and it's on the grass, but it's looking behind its shoulder and it's scuttled off into the bushes. But it was clearly a jet black, very, very large cat, much, much bigger than the ones I've seen, but jet black, mm. long tail, very muscular, Charlie, my Labrador dog's next to me. He's 39 kilo, and I'd have said lower to the ground like cats tend to be, but I'd be surprised if it was not heavier than what my dog weighs, and he's 39 kilo, to look at. And it was a very, very large black cat with a long black tail. So capable of killing a deer. Oh, yeah, I would have said this would probably be capable of killing quite a lot of things, actually. Yeah, it's. Um, I've never heard of a human being attacked by one in this country. It's not to say they haven't, but... I think it's the sort of thing, if you accidentally cornered it, I don't know how they'd react, but perhaps you'd have a problem. The other ones, that I, the one I'd shot and the one I ran over, perhaps not so much. But mm. like I say, I mean, I've given a rough idea of the size and possible weight of it, and it's extremely muscular. I don't know if it would be called a panther or not. I don't know very good them. Yeah, panther or possibly a black leopard. That's the main candidate for these ones. Jet black, though. No markings on it at all. It's literally jet black. I hung around long enough to get a glance for me to turn the lamp off, turn it back on, and it looked over its shoulder and scuttled off. Well, I say scuttled off, that it didn't. It's not so much it scuttled off. It was very fluid because it was so muscular, it, it ghosted off. You just know something like that, the way it moved. If it walked past, you wouldn't hear it. It's just the way it moved. It was so agile to look at, but so muscular as well. Yeah, very good. Did you see any eye shine? Yes, and I'm trying to think what a colour the eyes were, but they weren't like foxes' eyes under most lamplight looked like light light bulbs. Mm. Well, this had different eyes. I'm trying to recall what they were like, but they were definitely different. They may have been more yellow. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they was gold. They could have been green even so many years ago now, but they definitely weren't foxes' eyes. But pretty bright and large, presumably. Yeah, very large, very bright, yes. And the length of the tail, can you describe that? Probably the best part, the length of its body to its neck. It was quite a long tail. If you haven't already, try doing a Google Images search on black leopards and see what you reckon. Okay.
I should really have done it before tonight, but what is one thing and another? I've not really <laughs> done it, to be honest. I mean, it's interesting that you have recently rekindled your interest. Thank God for Facebook. <laughs> yeah, of course, you do have to filter some of the stuff, don't you? <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's some very wise comment and some many distractions. I can't remember how long afterwards we was within a couple of hundred yards, and this is all the north side of where we're reservoir. This within 200 yards of the site and I've just described. There's this picnic area, and you look down the bank to the field, to the woods. The fields had just been cut. So the stubble was like quarter-inch high, bright yellow grass. Nice summer's evening. We're standing there. I turned this lamp on. Pardon the language. <laughs> I've turned it off, looked at him. And in the darkness, we still see each other's faces with feet away. I went, whispered, I went, what did you see? So I've not even given you a hint of what I've seen. He described exactly what I know I've just seen, which is exactly what I've just described with the, my fr- friend. Giant black cat. Anyway, I've... As quick as I sort of, what did you say, and put the lamp back on was probably well under 10 seconds, perhaps a little over five seconds. So mm-hmm. lamp off, what did you see? He whispered what he said, lamp lamp on, well under 10 seconds, it had gone. Literally, mm-hmm. it was a fleeting glance. It was gone, it had vanished. And it couldn't have hidden. I mean, it was near the woods. It must have literally bounded off in the woods and out of sight. And we stood around, didn't get any eyes shine. There was nothing. We, we carried on with our night. But he described perfectly, he's not a shooting man, exactly what I'd seen. Yes. So there's no imagination going on here. This is using like a million candle power lamp. And this was within 200 yards of one me and my friend had seen. So it may have been the same one. And what were those dates? I'd have been 23, 24, and I'm 50 now. So there you go. It's a long time ago. It's about 27 years ago. What do you think personally about big cats? Say they are naturalising. What do you think about that for the land and for, for nature and the ecosystem in Britain? I mean, you hear a sheep being taken, and I think as we discussed before, some farmers are, well, if they want to take the odd sheep, you know, not really bothering me, best of luck to them. So there is that, and I'm not a sheep farmer, and I can kind of go with that to an extent. I suppose it depends how costly it is. You know, you breed sheep for a living, that's that's your income, that's your livelihood. So there is that, but then I regard them as a curiosity. I am curious about them. I would like to watch, if I saw one again, like I said, I don't know how I'd react, but I'd quite happily, I think, be fascinated just to watch one or preferably film it as i'm watching it it'd be great you know i've got no fear nor no no axe to grind with big cats i mean if they are out there which we know they are and they're not bothering anyone there is that i mean and so amongst the stalkers and gamekeepers you mix with now richard is it a talking point much or is it something or does it just vary depending on the individual over weeks or months, I'm bound to bump into someone that's going to crop up in conversation. And I, but I will say, I wouldn't be surprised if someone goes, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so, or, or I've shot one. You know, most people that tell you that will say it very matter-of-factly. You know, they don't want any um, credit for it. They just oh, yeah, you know, I know someone shot one like that. It's, well, I did read one about the they have Marines down Dartmoor or somewhere after one of these big cats, and basically the commanding officer which is quite a big thing. You know, an officer in the military, to say they've seen or done something, their career's on the line if they turn out to be a water mitty character. And I think someone, this officer was saying these Marines, they witnessed one. It didn't really make a lot of sense how I read it. They basically said you didn't shoot it because it was unsafe, which, all right, Dartmoor or Exmoor, wherever it was, is a big place with plenty of safe backstops. But if he says it was unsafe and he's a Marines officer, He's either making an excuse they didn't want to shoot you or they shot you and he didn't want to tell you, or it was an unsafe shot, draw your own conclusion. But it was supposedly come from a military officer that had said his men had seen this big cat. That was the essence of it. Marines had 
encountered one of these big gaps through the optics of their sniper rifles. Certainly in the forthcoming documentary, Britain's Big Cat Mystery, uh, that Matt Everett is producing, there is a reconstruction of the Marines on Exmoor when they, they were pursuing the Beast of Exmoor in the 80s. And you'll be able to hear an interview with a Marine who was on duty and who saw one and took a shot at one. And he's not sure how successful that shot was. He did think he hit it, but he didn't see any body and he didn't see any signs of it petering out from the shot. So that was tantalising, but it's a very interesting interview as part of that documentary. Yes, so soldiers are issued with ammunition that's not designed to expand because it would be against the Geneva Convention. So they may well have like, hit this large cat. The soldier may well have been shooting accurately, but because it's not expanding ammunition because it's banned in warfare, it's not going to kill as well as someone like myself that hunts with because there's a loophole in the law. You, you use what's called Section 5 expanding ammunition because it's a legal requirement to shoot here. Not only is it more humane, it's uh, less chance for ricochet, but soldiers aren't issued with what I am, ironically, <laughs> with our strict firearms. Well, it's quite ironic when you think of it. But there could be any number of reasons he even missed it or he, may, he unfortunately may have wounded it. Who knows? I had a senior military officer within the talk, in the discussion period at the end, stand up in front of people he knew and people he didn't know and talk all about having a very good sighting of one. And we were able to show a picture of a filleted out large row doe carcass within about 200 metres from his sighting. You would judge it as a big cat carcass anyway, but the fact it was so coincidentally close to where he'd had a very good view of the cat of a large black panther type one in a military training area was a nice sort of bit of coincidence. Is there anything finally you'd like to say before we close? Would it be more feasible they're living in built-up areas for richer pickings or semi-built-up areas, or do they want to keep well on the out of the way in Dartmoor, Exmoor, there's no one around because they like their privacy? just depends on the location of a territory. If one set a territory and it encompasses a bit of an urban or urban fringe situation or a bit of a motorway edge. And where would they live if they breed? You know, whether they're breeding or not, where would they where would they be likely to live? Yeah, territory of five to twenty-five square miles-ish, you know, give or take, depending on prey density right. and circumstance. And a lot of the time, they'll be laying up in thick bramble scrub and and cover and a fallen down conifer tree or an old car wreck or a derelict old caravan or a, a barn or a derelict building that hasn't got a human smell. So they'll have some favoured layup spots, and if it's a female, they'll have some favoured den sites and they move around the territory female calling in the male when she's ready in estrus ready to do her stuff and, and the male spending his life encompassing females so they are largely solitary and the female can be sexually active from about three years old and with their young the litter can be probably average of two and one may not survive, but in a country like Britain, where it's easy, I think the temperatures are easy and the prey density is good, probably there's a high survival rate. And the litter grow up with her for about up to two years, and from a year on, they're trained to kill and hunt and, and you know, learn those skills from mother. You know, it sounds radical, but all of that, I think, is going on in some parts of Britain. And what's interesting, you're talking about um, Sussex, and Sussex is not on the radar much of sightings, of reports. Although Charlie Bones, I think I mentioned to you, Charlie Bones is a very good recorder. Yeah. He, you know, he takes reports from people and is trusted and known and respected because he's very objective and he follows things up and gives people support and advice if they want it. 
But Charlie himself feels that Sussex is not a key area of big cat reports uh, compared to some yeah. other places. Now, we don't really know that th- those are just our judgments based on the reports we get, but it just shows you, you know, I, I would think you know, Sussex would be well suited, plenty of deer, lots of thick woodland. It may be that there's less sightings reported in Sussex because it's so densely wooded. It's more difficult to come across the evidence and to see the cats. I'm guessing most big cats are nocturnal anyway. Yeah, I think it can vary. I think dawn and dusk, you know, uh, like like the deer are dawn and dusk. So, but yeah, certainly nocturnal. They've got brilliant, um, you know, night vision when they've got the upper hand. Richard, I, I would suggest that you don't expect to see another one, do you? Or do you think you have a chance? If I see one, I see one. I mean, I'm not, it's not really something I give a lot of thought to. Yeah, I, I would like to see one though, just just a, out of curiosity. I mean, I've seen what I've seen and picked up what I've picked up, but. Yeah, I would love to see another one. Yeah, would you be able to film it easily? Do you carry anything with you that would film oh, it? Oh, nowadays, yeah. I mean, I'm like most people, I've got a decent phone. I've got Huawei P30 from the camera on these phones. is better than most cameras nowadays. What about if it's at night or dawn and dusk? Oh, it's not a problem. The, the, the phone's got the facilities for that anyway. You know, it's got its own lighting. If it's dawn or dusk, I'll have a talk to me as well. So it's not a problem. Nowadays, I don't go anywhere without my phone. I don't even go from upstairs to downstairs without <laughs> having it in my hand or my pocket. So, no, I can guarantee I would film it nowadays. No two ways about that. Sorry, one thing I haven't asked you, which I meant to, is that say somebody was assigned to shoot one. And I know, incidentally, some stalkers and gamekeepers have told me that they've got strict ins- instructions not to shoot one for different reasons um, on, their, on the land that they're deployed on. But say, say somebody was assigned to shoot one, it's not going to be that easy, is it? No. I mean, if someone asked me outright, just hypothetically, could you shoot these big cats that are on my land? But I was asked to, because no matter what happens, I'd be getting shot. Mm. I would do it on the basis, not being egotistical or narcissistic or anything else. I would do it on the basis, I know I'm a very good shot, and if you're going to be shot anyway, I might as well do the job properly and do it myself. So I would, I would actually do it on that basis but if it was a case of they're there but they, they don't bother me then that's fine by me too so unless i was in danger or someone or something else was in immediate danger i'd be quite happily just watch the things if this situation ever arose but yeah i would actually be the the hired gun you know if necessary but the hired gun may find it incredibly difficult to be able to actually achieve it do you think yes i can see that i mean from my knowledge of Snipers in the military, I mean, it's a well-known phenomenon. Trained snipers are going for all their training selection, which is quite severe. But some of them, when it comes to it, the problem with snipers is because you're using a high-powered optic, not open sights, you're looking at, into someone's soul. You're looking at every detail on their face, the same as you would one of these cats. You've got a close-up image. It's very personal. And if it's a few hundred yards or more away, it's as if you're standing next to the thing or with the military, other people psychologically a lot of people can't do it because shooting at some a silhouette in the distance through open sights with your normal eyes is one thing it's not very personal but looking for a high-powered optic at something it's extremely personal you see every hair every wrinkle it's intimate that's why i think some people couldn't bring themselves to do it i mean i could i'm quite clinical like that which is nothing you're proud of but you know i could in a way, that's a sort of psychological difficulty, but there's also just the practical difficulty of being in the right place at the right time for, for an animal that is transient and, and very stealthy. Yeah, 
it's got to be at the right place at the right time. Most people, no matter how skilled they are, don't shoot something at a rifle when it's moving, as a rule. Uh, you just don't. So you, you at least need it to stop briefly, which, of course, everything does at some point. Every, everyone, everything stops at some point, you know, mm. whether it's to eat or to sleep. But, yes, well, I can see why it would pose a difficulty. Not only you've got to find the things in the first place, you then got to get a safe shot at a suitable distance with it standing still. You know, obviously, you've got to fully identified what it is before you raise the rifle to it. If you're doing your job properly, you don't expect people do do it, but you shouldn't be going around pointing rifles and examining things for the telescopic sight. I mean, probably loads of people do, but you shouldn't because you're still pointing a gun at something. Yes that you haven't fully identified. That's why you should always carry binoculars. <laughs> but yeah, I can see why that would be a problem on a number of points. It's a shame that some of these um, shooting scopes don't record, do they? Some do. Some are full night vision as well. I mean, I don't own night vision equipment. I've never needed it. And plus, it's a lot of money. We're talking thousands of pounds for something worth having. Um, but yeah, some people are recording video footage of foxes the foxes moving to the point where they've shot it it's all on video under night vision I mean, a lot of people use thermal as well to pick up stuff it's quite a luxury most people that have got that said they would never do without it but we're talking serious amounts of money for that yeah most things are possible now if you've got the money with the technology we've got nowadays yeah thanks ever so much richard i hope people can respect the points you made even if they don't in some sense fundamentally agree I've got no axe to grind with these creatures or any other creatures, to be quite honest. But it's conservation, isn't it? However you want to view the term conservation, you're still doing something for the greater good. You know, I mean, people could argue that fox there is not causing me a problem, but then of the idea behind it is you keep the numbers down. Rather than Fred or Harry fox is the particular problem, you know, it's um, Simon or Jeff that is. You don't look at it like that. If it's a problem in that area, you eradicate accordingly, you know. Because um, obviously you try and prevent them breeding, which is part of the, the game. I should ask you, Richard, how has deer stalking and culling deer changed through your time doing it? I don't shoot a lot of deer. I do it more like one for the pot here and there. I'm not, I'm probably shoot more foxes than deer, to be quite honest, for a number of reasons. But from my knowledge of it, I would say more people are deer stalking nowadays. It's not so much a rich man's hobby. Lots of people are getting into deer stalking, um, which is good from my point of view. I don't think it's so as exclusive as it was. And to be quite honest, in areas like I am, you see, you literally see more deer than rabbits. I mean, the poor old rabbits, they suffered that viral hemorrhaging disease a few years back. And they've not really recovered. Especially in Ashdown Forest, the road casualties just reported a normally high 300s at which cross on the A22 every year. It's just what's reported, road traffic accidents. So they are a pain in the backside. <laughs> It is necessary, yes. Right, Richard, thank you. I think we're going to have to close it then. Thanks ever so much for your time. Okay, thanks. Our word of the week for this episode is stalking. So stalking means to pursue stealthily. And you could do that as a human, as in a deer stalker, or as an animal, as in a predator. Perhaps we've got partial examples of stalking in both these senses in this episode, with the two main cases explained by our guests. We're actually going to do an interview with a deer stalker from Scotland in a future show, because he had a big cat encounter that we'll hear all about, and we'll no doubt get more on stalking for deer within that discussion. 
In terms of a predatory cat following people, there's an example described very well by Frank Tunbridge back in episode 4 of Big Cat Conversations. That type of stalking, as described by that witness, is a case of what's called in the literature following and hiding. And in that example, which was very scary, the witness described that each time she turned round to look at the pursuing panther, it bellied down and stayed still, but it moved off and shadowed her when she started moving forward again. So that was a clear case of what is called following and hiding. Eventually she was able to get over a stile at the end of the little ravine she was in and walk off away from the woodland. We have a slightly different case of being followed by a big cat coming up now with our next guest, Andrew. The literature on the topic suggests we should consider two types of behaviour that could be happening. Is the cat assessing the chances of a successful attack, in which case maybe it's a dog which is the main target, or is the cat ushering the person away? escorting them away without wanting a confrontation because it's eyeing up natural prey or it's got young nearby or it's got food nearby. And so for any of these or other reasons, it doesn't want company and disturbance from people or their dogs. Smelling strongly of perfume could also be a reason why a cat follows a person because perfume could be an attractant. Here in Gloucestershire, we've had two cases of women followed by a big cat, neither of whom were walking a dog, but in both cases they confirmed they would have smelled of perfume at the time, so perhaps that was the reason. So we're bound to be talking about stalking again in future episodes, and this is just a little marker for it because of what's coming up next with our next guest. So that's our word of the week, stalking. Okay, well, for our next guests, we have four guests for the second half of this episode. Two humans and two dogs. And the people who have come with me to the edge of the River Severn here are Andrew, who was a witness, and Paul, who is a local investigator. I'll introduce them in a minute. But first of all, to say it's very nice to be able to get out in the outdoors again as lockdown eases away now. And we're here on the 2nd of July, 2020. We're on the edge of the River Severn, near Thornbury, I would say, is the nearest landmark. We can see the Severn bridges to our south, and we're right by a big stretch of the river, about a mile and a half its width on the map. Inland is the motorway, we're about four or five miles from the M5 motorway. And the connection with this landscape and where I live, about 25 miles north, is that every late afternoon, evening, I will see lots of common gulls in V formations flying over my house, and they're going to the Severn Estuary. And they're probably coming to landscapes like here because we've got big sandbars in the middle of the tidal estuary here, foreshore and beach areas and nice long grassy type habitats where the gulls rest at night. Paul, later on in the interview, will discuss the landscape and the prey for a big cat. But first of all, we welcome Andrew, who was the witness here. And this event happened on the 30th of May, just gone. So, Andrew, thanks for coming and joining us. No, thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Okay, and your dogs were part of the incident, so can you introduce your two yeah, dogs? Yeah, the two French bulldogs. It's uh, Paris and Bizou. They're the two bitches. They're about six years old. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and if we can hear them in the background, that's because they're snuggling up to <laughs> Owen, who is meant to be recording the sound, but is a bit distracted. And we're also, I, I'm dreading having my photograph taken because I haven't had my hair cut for three months in lockdown. So we've got a panther prop, which Andrew can relate to as a scale representation. So, Andrew, first of all, before we get started on the actual encounter, Tell us about what your feelings were on Big Cat reports and Big Cat sightings before this incident. A bit sceptical, really. I mean, I, I can remember sort of when I was younger, the reports that sort of came out of Cornwall and Devon and places like that from the press and things. And I, I mean, I'm sort of aware of it, but I wasn't really, I didn't really have any sort of real opinion on it. If I did, I would have felt it was something really that was unlikely to happen, really. Uh, I, was, I was quite sceptical, really, of the, actually, you know, the existence of an ongoing problem. So I can imagine maybe something years ago, once or twice, but for it to keep coming up, you know, I was a little bit sceptical, really. Yeah. And presumably thought it would never happen to you. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. When it did happen to you, yeah. uh, what was it, 30th of May? Yeah, Saturday the 30th of May it was. It was about um, 20 to 8 in the evening, uh, again, on this location. Myself and my partner Meg, with the two dogs, we were walking along the ridge over there, which is the Seven Seven Way, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. We were just walking along. Again, it's a, it's a nice location to come bar two animals because they can go off the lead. It, it was during lockdown as well, so it's guaranteed you never see anybody here. So it was a, a good place to come, basically. Um, you know, we, we were just walking along, obviously with the river to our left. They were off the lead. Basically, they stopped in front of me and I, I looked up and I could see what I thought was a large dog really a large sort of dark brown black dog sort of walking towards me I can remember thinking oh god you know it's, it's, a, it's a large animal my two dogs don't like other dogs um, I better put them on the lead so this I did I sort of crouched down put them on the lead when I looked up I noticed that the animal was still coming towards me then it actually turned to what would be its left walked down the bank and at that point as it walked down the bank I sort of looked and I sort of thought didn't look like a dog I noticed I had a flat face pointed ears and a long sort of curled tail um I watched it and I thought it's a bit odd and I said to my partner I think we better sort of walk back you know really being 100% sure what it was even at that point it then walked down the bank crossed a field we turned walked back along the path towards our car it walked along a hedgeway which it fo- it kind of followed us at a distance uh, so it was walking behind us. We carried on walking. We sort of walked a bit quicker. It follows again until we got to the point where we stood now where there's a larger sort of hedge line with some sort of trees. And it went through a hedge and I lost sight of it. Could you describe it as much as possible a bit? I mean, you have to some yeah. extent, but the sort of scale compared to a dog and the length of the tail and the head, that sort of thing? I would say it would be a, a large dog size, sort of maybe like a large Labrador Alsatian, that sort of size. At first, I thought it was taller than it was, but I think it wasn't. I think it was probably a Kimball to come up to, say, my, my thigh, something like that. Mm-hmm. Again, it had a long curled tail. It was very dark, uh, very flat face, and it was actually quite lithe. It was quite um, quite thin, you know, which made, which made me talk, what, question what it was, first of all, really. What, what is that, you know? Um, yeah, very, very dark. And again, I noticed it had sort of short pointed ears, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw it perfectly in profile when it walked across the field because I could see, you know, its, it's sort of length. It was quite long, mm-hmm. uh, like a sort of Irish wolfhound sort of length, really. Um, and again, like I say, you know, it, it walked along behind us, you know. Did you notice it wasn't wearing a collar? Yeah, yeah, that was the first thing I sort of, 
because I immediately thought first when it was coming towards us, I think it's a big dog off a lead, whereas it's Carl and I thought a stray, and then I thought oh, I better get them out of the way because it could be wild, it could be, and then obviously when it turned in its profile, and I looked and I thought that's not a dog, you know, and my partner was sort of a bit confused to say, you know, what is that, you know, and I sort of said, well, I don't think it's a dog, you know. Um, and its attitude when it saw you, what do you think its behaviour was, if you reflect on it? The more I think about it, it wasn't, I don't think it was trying to avoid us. I don't think it was actually trying to get away from us. I mean, the more I think about it now, I think it almost was curious, as if to say it wanted to see what we were, so it moved away to get a better perspective of us, if that makes sense. So it gave itself some space, and it was behind us, and it almost felt like it watched us to an extent, and followed us to an extent, and then out of blue it just turned left through the hedge and it went mm-hmm. were you scared yeah 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 i was yeah because i was so it wouldn't really register what i was seeing really i was thinking i'm seeing something here which i wouldn't normally see something like this so it felt a bit odd and like i said behavior to two animals was quite strange because they kind of they just wanted to get away they when we walked away they were pulling to go so, your two dogs yeah yeah they were pulling along the path to sort of go back towards our car so yeah i was i was very worried yeah to be honest yeah how far into the incident did you realize it was a cat of any other animal i think probably within 10 seconds of it turning yeah yeah on the path like i said i was adamant it was just a dog and then as soon as the profile turned it turned and went down the actual slope uh, it was quite evident to me it was a cat and how long did it take for the dogs to react in a however they reacted? Instantly. Instantly. I mean, it, it, I could say, really, to be honest, it was them that brought it to my attention because they stopped in front of me and I wasn't even looking ahead. You Gosh. know, it was only that I stopped. What, they look, what are they looking at? Is that unusual behaviour for them? Yeah, normally. Yeah, they wouldn't. If it was another dog coming along, normally they would bark or they'd make some noise because obviously they're, they're quite nervous of other dogs so they, they do that as a mechanism to sort of ward it off really yeah uh, so for them they just remained very quiet and very silent and it's quite odd on reflection i think they must have been aware that it was a threat yeah and obviously maybe their mechanism was to try and stay still and quiet and do you know what i mean to let the sort of danger pass maybe interesting and i i heard i know that you spoke to our good friend frank tunbridge yeah. who's sometimes on the show and we'll no doubt have frank again yeah. and he told me that your your other half was going to take a photo and you stopped her because you were so worried about getting out getting away yeah absolutely well you must apologize for that yeah <laughs> yeah sorry I, I i mean it was literally you know makes it shall i try and i said no let's just go let's just go she I was said, ready to take a picture yeah she had her phone on on her i said let's just go i've really kicked myself now because i probably could have been a really great piece of evidence really but yeah. at the time i was i was more worried about I was, I was sort of conscious of the fact that if it decided to attack us or try and steal one of my i wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do anything yeah so i thought at least at that point when she said shall i take a photograph i was no could we had a bit of distance so i thought at least there was a bit of space between us i didn't want to get any closer to it so do you think the photograph would have been any good were you at a distance that it would have been clear enough i think so yeah progressively oh, yeah i think because because we were at higher as well yeah and you probably could have got the dimensions very good because it was against a hedge yeah a bit of a shame really it's a bit of a lost opportunity really but hmm. um no we quite understand i'm <laughs> yeah. sure most of our <laughs> listeners forgive you yeah. <laughs> yeah so how interested do you think it was in the dogs or is it very difficult to tell don't really know to be honest i think i think it was curious it was definitely curious i think it, had it been wanting to avoid us sort of common sense would say it would have just gone straight across the field into another another area so we couldn't see it i find it strange that it would walk 
kind of parallel to us, if you know what I mean. So it's behind us, but sort of, sort of walking behind us. And I was mm. very conscious, sort of looking at my shoulder out, that it was not just turning away. When were you most scared? When, as soon as you saw it and realised, or when it started sort of following you a bit? When it was walking behind us, following us, because I was, I was then sort of wondering what its intentions were, really. And obviously concerned because we were quite a way away from anything, anybody, our car, you know, a good sort of quarter of a mile, something like that, before we could actually find anyone, really, because it's so quiet. Um, and I have to say, when it actually turned and went through the heads, I was quite relieved, thinking it's, it's obviously lost interest now. Yeah. You were watching it all the time as you were walking away? I gave my two dogs to the two dogs to Meg and yeah. said, keep walking. She sort of walked in front and I sort of kept walking under my head and was, you know, turned to my left really looking at it. And it went at the same pace as you did it? It walked at the same pace? I would say it was a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. A little bit slower. Mm. You know, I mean, we did actually speed up, to be fair, but um, it was a little bit slower. Okay, after the event, when you got back, did you think of telling the police? Well, I... Didn't want to make it really. I, it was only until I thought I, I, I spoke to a couple of my friends about it. One, two of them were which ridiculed me straight away, uh, but one of them didn't. There's a friend of mine who uh, does a lot of cycling around here, and he's, he's in a cycle club. And he said, "Oh, there's been quite a number of things seen up there." Mm. And he sent me a link to South Gloucester Police, I think it was, on the website. And there was a thing, a picture of sightings on there. Yeah. And it was from that. Obviously, I saw the link to Frank, but I didn't actually report it at the time. No, no, and I haven't reported it. Lots of people don't, so there's no, there's no right or wrong about that. Maybe if they would have been asking if somebody had been hurt or something, or do you know what I mean? I might have maybe mm. sort of raised it really, but it's kind of strange times really with the lockdown and everything as yeah. well. And you know, I, I kind of sort of slipped me by really. But you've realised what an awkward subject it is to raise with people, haven't you? You're yeah. damned if you do, damned if you don't. You could scare people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, like apart from that one good friend I've got who sort of said, no, actually, no, I believe you because, mm. you know, there's a few people I know that live in the area that have said they know someone that may have seen it or know. Or, I'm definitely been a little bit ridiculed, but it doesn't bother me that much. But no. I, I could see why a lot of people wouldn't want to say something, really. I mean, I was doubting what I saw myself, really, initially, at the time, you know, the first second. Lots of people do. Yeah. What about walking here again, Andrew? Are you happy to walk here again regularly now? Well, strangely enough, this is the first time I've been back here, actually. Okay. <laughs> it's a shame, because I do like it here, and, uh, but I am a little bit apprehensive about coming back here, to be honest. Yeah. Um, certainly on my own, or just the two of us. Strangely enough, my sister sometimes, she's very kindly walks them, and she's been up here a couple of times, and I've said to her, don't don't come here anymore really that reinforces the fact of how real it was for you doesn't it that it does go, go to influence your return absolutely because i was very aware that if that situation would have gone bad there's nothing i could have done about it here absolutely nothing because there's just no one nothing nobody you could turn to in the houses you know if you can see yourself there's only two houses and one of those is empty i think it is a lot about the human reaction in that case in that situation you want to keep your composure and not do anything to provoke it yeah and, and interest it further yeah yeah, I just thought if we just walked away as quick as we could and I even contemplated because we were trying to walk on the other side so it couldn't see us at some point. But by that point, it had gone. How long did that whole incident take? It really wasn't a long time at all. I mean, from the point of seeing it, I would have said a minute, a minute and a half. OK, it's long enough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It felt a lot longer. <laughs> yeah. Now, reflecting on it all, how do you feel emotionally about it and about Big Cat's... Is it still something which is bothersome and worrying, or do you think, actually, this is quite fascinating? Which of those emotions, or is it a bit of both? A bit of both, to be honest. Um, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I find it fascinating that it could survive. You know, it's certainly been an eye-opener for me, because I could say I would have thought there wouldn't be enough food, but obviously clearly there is. I'm out of persuasion now, the more I sort of read on on this, 
different information in people's accounts that there's probably more than one. And I think in terms of the actual animal itself, I think it would be terrible for it to be sort of hunted down. Do you know what I mean? That, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I think that would be awful. If I'm honest, I don't think it should be in this environment, quite frankly, because I think it's unsafe for people and for it, really, yeah. uh, in the long run. I'd hate to think of somebody tracking it down and killing it, uh, but maybe it needs to be in a, a reserve or something. You know, I don't know. But but if they've been out since the Second World War, really, in the yeah. 70s, <laughs> you know, th- those are the yeah. sort of th- yeah. assumed and in some ways ad- acknowledged and admitted first releases, and we think they may well be naturalising, and they're not causing much hassle it's i suppose it's, it's if, if it's integrated into the landscape now and it's i mean i suppose it would only become problematic if it started hurting people wouldn't it hmm. you know which i mean that's a different game isn't it you know yeah yeah sure so do you feel in an ideal situation we should have a little sort of low-key cautionary sign where we've parked our cars five minutes along the track from here to say a recent there's been recent reports of large wild cat yeah um just to be aware 100 uh, yeah 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 i really think that's a good idea mm. um yeah but do you think the problem is when i've discussed that with police and others they make a good point that those sorts of signs could have unintended consequences it could get people here with firearms and you could scare people you know we don't want to scare people no. we want to stop people having fresh air and exercises which is physically and mentally important for people that's the problem isn't it it's it's got those consequences but well i guess that's a bit of a trade-off isn't it really i mean i think really it's up to the individual isn't it as long as you inform someone you can't stop people doing you know unfortunately there are enough crazy people in the world to come in and you would get i suppose initially if people think oh they've seen some of those and i'm sure you would get a certain amount of people for a while until the novelty wears off and they don't see anything i guess so you think it would be a protocol that we should i think so yeah go for yeah yeah that's interesting let's just say i suppose for argument's sake in other countries where they're aware of them if you were in a national park say in, in america maybe i don't know i guess you would have that wouldn't you yes exactly absolutely yeah and it would be updated it would say the last sighting was uh, six weeks ago well, yeah like yours yeah. yeah yeah fascinating yeah but the last known sighting of course doesn't mean to say it's not around or yeah before we hand over to paul uh, to get his sort of overview because it's so good that we've got paul here who knows this area and has been sussing it out for quite a long time and he can give his perspective and he's had a little sort of suss out of it before we started this interview so he's going to have a few sort of comments to make anything you want to ask him while you've got the microphone to say you know questions you've got for paul for his analysis yeah really i mean i think we touched on it briefly was just about the cycle of what the animal might have really um in terms of Obviously, it must know its its area, so it's the frequency of which it would travel in that area, maybe what the range it would travel. I mean, would it be 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles? I don't know, you know, the width of it. Um, yeah. Obviously, I'm assuming, like, it would need to have a regular, like all animals, you know, for water, and, you know, it's bound to have somewhere where it sleeps, there, or whatever, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're always agonising yeah, over that stuff. Yeah. It's very difficult. But Paul can, because Paul knows the area well, he can give us some kind of thoughts on that. And what, what it would prey on, really... We sent you the um, Paul to explain this uh, deer carcass photo, which is a good one. Yeah. Which we, we, in fact, we've decided. Owen and I have decided on the website we are going to start putting some gory carcass photos because actually they are part of the subject. Absolutely. We've actually rejected doing that so far. Yeah. But now it's the, the new, some of the newspapers are even putting them in. Yeah. We think we should on the website. So, what did you think when you saw that? It puts it in perspective. It really does put it into um, looking at it. I can't believe there's an indigenous creature here that could do that a badger couldn't do that or a fox just for the listeners um, if, if they haven't been to the website it's so we put it under episode 28 on the refs and links page it's a full 
grown adult roe doe, I think. Paul will confirm that. And it's pretty well eaten out, mm. snipped through the rib cage and hollowed out. And yeah. um, you'd never seen anything like that before when I sent the photo. No, you? absolutely. The only time I've ever seen anything like that has been on a sort of natural history program or something, to be honest. you know, yeah. Certainly, I've never seen anything like that in you know, the countryside. You might come across a dead animal or something that's been run over and the scavengers have, have been good. This is devoured, basically. Yeah. But can you equate that carcass with the animal you encountered? Definitely, yeah, definitely. It would have been big enough to do that, yeah. yeah so that, that partly answers your question about what they could eat. Yeah, yeah, completely. Obviously, deer, I mean, I'm not very au fait where you would find deer. I've got to be honest, I've lived in the city most of my life. But um, I could certainly understand that you would probably, if it ate one of those animals, I know how long it would need to eat before it needed to eat again. That's a week know. and a half, in a way. You'd probably do it in two sittings or... Um, it? Right. And it's, yeah, a week and a half. Okay. It might be eating a few bunnies and pheasants sure. in between, but it's largely that's its fill for okay. you know, a week at least, yeah. Anything else, finally, you want to say, Andrew, before we hand over the microphone? Um, no, really, just about, really, I, I, I'm just sort of glad to have the opportunity to sort of share the experience, really, because I think more people should really probably take notice, really, mm. of, you know, there is a lot of stuff out there, I think, that we sort of take for granted, really. Yeah. And the more and more I come, especially since lockdown, sort of remote places, it makes me realise that things like that obviously do exist you know basically yeah sure okay well i want to thank you very much for coming on the show and being so honest it's so nice that it's a, such a recent encounter and so local conveniently for us yeah. in gloucestershire apologies to the listeners to being in gloucestershire again but it is yielding good reports and um, we've got good contacts so we do get the report so andrew thanks ever so much for coming on the show no, thanks very much happy thank you okay thanks to andrew and now on to paul paul ramsden Paul was last on the podcast episodes on episode eight, talking about his search for cats and looking for the evidence around the greater Bristol area and also his sighting in Dorset a few years back. Paul, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming. No problem, Rick. Good to be here. Lovely evening. Absolutely, isn't it? Beautiful spot and a bit of Gloucestershire I didn't know and I'll certainly be coming back, A, because of cats and B, because glorious views and right by the river and lots of wildlife. So, Wonderful spot. Nice place to just go for a walk, really. Yeah. So, Paul, what is a big cat doing here on the side of the River Severn, and where's it going elsewhere? I've been looking in this area now between Avermouth and where we're stood at the moment for probably five years. The conclusion I've come to is that the M5 at the back of us is high up and tree-lined along the ridge by the side of it, and that seems to be the winter habitat. And then in the summer, they tend to move down onto this flat ground along here. I find a lot of kills along the foreshore and all the way back as right back to Avermouth. So it's almost like we're getting a full circle that takes 12 months. Where we're stood here, where Andrew seen his sight in, a year ago, exactly, I found a dead deer, which will be on the website, that was killed and eaten out by what I believe is a large cat. Yeah. By the style that was killed and eaten and everything else. So, like, yeah, it's like an annual 12-month cycle. He might meet one or two females during that loop. I don't know. It might be a boy. It might be several of them. But mm-hmm. it seems it's almost like a constant cycle that takes a 12-month to come round. I'll find signs at this end in May, and I'll find signs down toward Avermouth end in December. Yeah. So, what sort of signs, Paul? Dead animals, eaten out, hollowed out animals, foxes, badgers, deer mostly. Yeah, so Andrew wasn't aware of deer here, but these fields would have hares and deer in? There's a lot of hares on the land around here because it's such big flat land. And I've took a walk along the back along the hedge here, and there's signs of grazing deer all along the edge here. So yeah, the, the whole place is full of muntjac and roe up here. Okay. Yeah. 
Now, Paul, earlier on I mentioned the common goals that I enjoy watching sweeping over my house silently in the late afternoon and early evening. I've never really thought they're coming out to the estuary and they're, obviously they can be predated by foxes, I guess, when they're roosting at night. But a panther would be interested in them as well. If it could get in amongst them, I would imagine definitely, yeah. The only thing I think along this part of the estuary is a lot of them do set on rocks and islands out in the river. Yes, under sandbars yeah. in the middle, yeah, and when the tide's down. A couple of famous roosts out in the middle of the river where a hell of a lot of seagulls do go. So, yeah. But yeah, d- definitely, I mean, I would say they're opportunists. Whatever's there, they're going to take it. So yeah, if they come across a group of them. Yeah, and of course, we're not far from Slimbridge, which people will know, the Wetlands Trust. That's right, yeah, Slimbridge is just out the way, yeah. But the wintertime, the birds along the shore here, it's stuffed with them, isn't it? Yeah. When I pulled up earlier on, there were several people taking photographs of the birds on the foreshore and what have you. And I would imagine also quite a lot of carcasses, like dead animals that get washed into the river further up, would end up on the foreshore. Yeah. Whether you get that kind of scavenging, I don't know. Yeah, so a cat here, Paul, you don't think is going to go up to the Cotswolds? I mean, the motorway's in the way. I believe this is a separate situation probably originated from the Cotswolds but I believe that as territories have grown and spread out this is now an individual that uses this area probably got a female or two here because I have had cub sightings down here as well yes so yeah so Paul is it reassuring I know it sounds a bit callous with that Andrew in earshot but is it reassuring that somebody had a very full-on encounter in an area where you expect big cats to be seen for you to now hear one in an area that you're sussing out a hundred percent Rick yeah and the time of the year as well is really important to me because I try to track their cycle of movement so the last time I had signs in this area was in May 12 months ago exactly and now Andrew's met one face-to-face in May a year later, so yeah. my cycle kind of theory is bearing up by people like Andrew seeing it. So, yeah. And I find the same things, like for the last three years, I've probably found the same signage in the same places in Avonmouth, which to me signals as set route that I can almost guarantee I can go to these places and find at certain times of the year. So Okay. What do you make of the sighting and the behaviour of the cat that you've just heard? Because you've been listening in to the interview. I think he's seen a black leopard, no doubt about it, really, yeah. I mean, Andrew's not, nobody else can see him, obviously, but I would say he's not the kind of guy who spends all his life out in the wilderness and would want to make it up or anything like that. He's just a guy taking his dogs for a walk Yeah. who's bumped into something that he can't explain and wants to tell people without being mocked about it, really, so... Yeah. What do you make of the behaviour of the animal? Oh, everything about it is right, yeah, yeah. But what do you think it was doing? What do you think it was? I think it was escorting Andrew away. Yeah. Realistically. It might have had an eye on his two little dogs, but I think it was escorting him away. Yes, ushering them away. Yeah, yeah that's sure. He's seen him off his turf and he's turned off and gone on. He's happy that he's going one way and he's going the other way, so... Yeah, okay. And now very locally, earlier on, while we were setting up, you were having a good nose around the hedgerow and this lovely pasture meadow that's just back behind the foreshore. What do you reckon of, what what was it doing around here, do you think, at that time? Like I said, Rick, there's loads of signs of deer grazing all along the edge there. You can see little circles of trimmed grass where they've been munching. So I would imagine if we stayed here another hour, there would probably be road coming out onto the foreshore for a grease. There's no sign of any sheep around or anything like that. So no, the the grazing over there is definitely road deer along that edge. Okay. And the fields here are very small and densely hedged. Yes. So they're full of wildlife. There's rabbits and deer in all those hedges. 
Yes, when I looked at it on the map and was I was driving to here, I was expecting it to be a bleak, open, windswept landscape. It's anything but. It's exactly. very tight landscape, isn't it, with lots of lovely shaggy hedges and tiny little fields, but masses of hedges. Like, yeah, and meadow, meadow grassland that yeah. is good ambush territory. And also, I think another thing because there's a power station just down the road here. A lot of the land is owned by the power station, so it's not tramped on by the public. People aren't building here and things like that. And it's not driven hard. The farmers do not have an incentive to drive the land hard. And not in- at all. Most of them are tenants. They rent from the power station, so they don't actually own the land. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot of tenant farmers around the area. Now, Paul, we're always looking for a hole in the hedge, and, and if a hedgerow has got one hole in it, yeah. or a fence has got one broken hole in it, that's where we think a cat or any mammal might... It's the pinch point for the exactly, ca- yeah. camera. So uh, one of us ought to come back here and put a camera... Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we were talking just now and Andrew was being interviewed, he sort of pointed out along the edge where the cat disappeared, and I've gone down there, and there's a good run through the edge there. So, yeah, I will come back and get a camera in there and hope that it comes back again. Excellent. It might be next May when I do it, the camera, <laughs> yes, because, yeah. like I said, it seems that it's an annual cycle and he's probably 10 miles further down the foreshore now, so... Yeah, yeah. But it's certainly I will take a note of this and the date, and then, yeah. Brilliant. It, I will have a camera there waiting at this time next year, so... Yeah, that's splendid. That's good. Now, the seven-way we're on it goes for 210 miles, the whole yeah. length of the River Seven up to Mid-Wales. Because the Severn is one of our sort of mighty rivers. We've got very few, just the Thames and the, yeah. the, the Thames and the Trent and the Severn are about the biggest in Britain. But So you know the Severn way a bit down here? Probably this is about as far as my extent, yeah. yeah. I would have a gap then up to sort of Berkeley and further up then because I, I got a boat up there and what have you, so I spend time up there. But yeah, from Bristol up to where we are now. Yeah. It's the riverside environment that interests you more than anything because you can it's get a better... It's all the floodland. The old, yeah. Most of this would have been underwater years ago. And all this flat floodland is, is definitely where they come to for the summer. Yeah. I think the grass is long and they can move about without being seen. As soon as the grass gets cut, they'll start moving back toward the higher ground and the trees and the woods. Okay, so my theory of them snaffling the water birds in the winter, you don't go for that? Personally, Rick, I don't think they're down there. It's too exposed in the winter. If you come down there in the winter when the edges are bare, yeah, you can see miles across the land and what have you. So, and I don't find very much signs other than up on the ridge along by the motorway. Fair enough. So, so my gulls are safe from this cat. I That's think it. they are. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Mind you, there's plenty of gulls. A bit of culling of gulls. No, it wouldn't hurt at all. No. <laughs> sure. Great, Paul. Anything else you want to say? Anything in the analysis of this? Well, I'm really glad that you called me in, to be honest with you, Rick, because like I said, it reinforces my kind of studies and what have you. It's it's part of a cycle. And if somebody said to me, where would you expect to find a cat in May? I would point you to this location. And Andrew's just pretty much confirmed that. So, yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you called me out and I've met Andrew. And it's another little piece of my jigsaw puzzle that's just been filled in. Yeah. Excellent. Of course, we don't know how many people might have had a similar experience and just not talked about. Exactly that, Rick, yeah. And hopefully this might bring a couple more out. That's the benefit of having a good grapevine. It's so nice. Hopefully it's nice for Andrew to hear that you were going to follow this up and keep an eye on this area. Yeah, yeah. I can see Andrew nodding in the background as as we're saying that. And if he wants to contact me in the future, if I get any pictures or whatever, then we got contact details. We can always uh, let him know and what's developing in the area. Lovely. Anything else you want to say, Paul, before we close? I think we're pretty much covered, Rick, to be honest with you, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is a good cat sighting in a good cat area at the right time of year. So 
to me, it ticks a lot of boxes, yeah, and there's no negatives, really. Yes. And having met Andrew as well, I would say genuine people, exactly what I would expect from somebody who's just met something that they never thought they were going to see in their life. So Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the dogs are having a little skirmish by us, which is fine. They're a bit more confident now. Right, I think that's a good note to finish on. And Paul Ramsden, thank you very much for being with us. I'm sure we'll hear from you again. No problem, Rick. It's great to help. For the listeners who want to hear Paul, Paul was on episode eight, if you haven't heard that. So more from him on episode eight. And he had a sighting in Dorset many years ago, but he certainly looks at this South Gloucestershire and Greater Bristol area. So thanks ever so much, guys. All the best. Thank you, Rick. Been brilliant. Cheers. Before we close, we've a couple of loose ends to sort out from our guest interviews. Firstly, with Andrew on the banks of the River Severn there, what we didn't mention is that the cat was within 60 feet of him and his partner and the dogs. So that's about 18 metres. And I think at that range, it's understandable that he didn't want to risk the time and the space to take some photos, especially with the dogs to handle as well. Andrew and I discussed the ears of the cat and he feels he saw them best when it went side on so they would look more pointy in shape in profile at that angle. So he doesn't feel we should read too much into his quote about them being pointed because we should expect them to be rounded if it was a leopard-like cat. We'll keep you updated if we get any more action of any type from that area especially with Paul keeping an eye on it. Back to Richard, our first guest... He and I agonised about the various wildcat species that could have matched his shot cat and the one he accidentally ran over. And in doing that, as we swap things on the internet and links to images of different golden coloured cats, we drew a blank really. The main ones we considered were Caracal, Asian Golden Cat, African Golden Cat and a Puma, a mountain lion, in its young form when it has got some camouflage markings as well. Richard felt that none of these really fitted. He felt that Asian Golden Cat was the closest possible match, but it wasn't quite correct, and they usually have golden streaks on their face, which you would certainly notice. So the identity of his shot and his ran-over cat remains a mystery, but then again we shouldn't expect every cat description to fit the textbooks. Perhaps we should expect some misfits now and again, especially if there is some interbreeding going on, and that might be particularly amongst smaller and medium-sized cats in the Felis genus. We've been sent a new book to review. It's a very impressive book called On the Prowl in Search of Big Cat Origins. It's just out from Columbia University Press. It's a great book because it's scholarly, but it's also readable and understandable, and it's packed on every double spread with useful illustrations. I'm delighted to say that Darren Nash of Tet Zoo fame, if you look that up on the internet, will join us for half an episode in a couple of months' time to discuss the main messages of the book and to consider where it has pointers for our thinking here and now in Britain. So for details of that new book, Google On the Prowl by Mark Hallett and John Harris, or check the link to it under episode 28 of the Refs and Links page on our Big Cat Conversations website. For our next two episodes, we're juggling between cases from Devon and from Scotland. We've not yet got the sequence sorted out, but amongst them, they involve an edgy close-up encounter at night, some evidence we've just turned up, which you'll hear all about, and some admissions of some released cats in the past. So all of that and more coming up. That's us done for this episode. 
A big thanks to all of our guests and thank you everyone for listening in. Remember, if you've had an incident involving a big cat and you'd like to talk it through on the show, please email me on rick at bigcatconversations.com. I hope it's all been useful. Take care, everyone, and bye for now.